I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. As the nationwide, indeed global, protests for police reform continue, the core questions remain. How do we end racial violence? How do we create an equitable playing field where all citizens can prosper and feel safe? I sat down with Mensah Ank Ma'a to discuss these questions and more. Mensah is a former principal and consultant to schools on cultural proficiency. Today, he is a partnership director at Turnaround for Children, and his role is to deliver Turnaround's professional learning series to principals and their leadership teams in D.C. public schools in our nation's capital. As you'll hear, Mensah's perspective and experience, focusing every day on keeping himself and his family safe, just might point a way to some answers. Before my conversation with Mensah, though, an ask from me to you. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Mensah Ma. Mensah, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time and your insights at this moment. My pleasure. You have a lot of roles, uh, educator, husband, father, citizen. I've asked this question elsewhere, but I think it's important to set the context for a conversation like this. To what extent do you feel those are uniquely intertwined at this moment versus to what extent do you feel the need to keep all of those roles compartmentalized? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think um, definitely um, – it's it's very difficult for me to to compartmentalize per se, um, so I try to uh, be my best and I guess most authentic self in in all of those spheres. But um, definitely, definitely, there's there's been challenges in all those um, uh, roles. Uh, as an educator, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. As the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic broke out, and I automatically became a you know stay at home full time uh, worker and full time educator. Um, at the same time. Um, but uh, of course, uh, they they bleed together. So a lot of a lot of uh, the ways that I've even tried to be the best father um, have um, have had to be reexamined just to make sure that I'm, I'm doing the very best for my kids and the generations to come. All the roles really inform one another, don't they? Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't believe it's really possible for me to um, really be one without being all of those things at the same time. When did you learn about George Floyd's death? Can you describe that moment for me? Yeah, it was uh, it was um, in, in a way that I wish uh, I wish I didn't have to learn about it. But um, I was actually sitting on the couch watching the evening news, and I have kind of heard about it um, on social media earlier that day. Uh, and um, I, uh, you know, was watching the news, and my the news announcer made a, an announcement as they often do in terms of what you're about to see um his graphic etc um didn't really know what i was about to see but um my oldest daughter was was sitting there with me and before i could really realize what you know the totality of what was happening uh we both we both watched that together uh, and i did not intend for definitely for her to see it how old this you said this is your older daughter how old is yeah, she she's uh, she's a sixth grader or actually going into the seventh grade she's 11 years old uh, turning 12 at the end of august how does an 11 year old even begin to 
process something like this? I mean, that specific instance, uh, she doesn't have the context, um, nor do I believe she really understood exactly what was happening um, and uh, the historical underpinnings of it. But she, of course, saw a, a white police officer kneeling on the neck of a, of a black man. Uh, we have definitely had conversations, even in terms of um, other things that have unfortunately continued to occur um, and be part of the, the current current events of the day uh, in the past years uh, since she was born. Uh, so she knows that that race is a thing. She knows that um, I in particular am, am um, uh, racialized and my body is, is weaponized in, in many aspects. So uh, even recalling back to when um, Philando Castile was, was murdered uh, in broad daylight in, in his car in, in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and we were actually on a cruise during that time. It's, uh, these are things that I've had to kind of tell my daughter and explain to them why, um, you know, sometimes I, you know, make it, I always make it my number one objective to get home safe and why sometimes that's a challenge uh, for me and, and how I have to navigate. So these are the things that both my nine and my 11 year old have had uh, very um, pretty explicit conversations with them while still, of course, trying to allow that space for them to to be children and um, to um, learn about these things uh, on their own. But definitely as a parent, uh, there, there are things that you have to express uh, to your children. I've, and I've tried to be as transparent as and honest as possible. What do you say to them? What does what a conversation like that to a nine-year-old or an 11-year-old sound like? You know, I, I've, I've told them like, hey, you know, Unfortunately, uh, for lots of reasons, many people uh, may be fearful of daddy uh, just because of, of um, how they were brought up, things that they believe. Um, a lot of times, even just watching TV, uh, watching commercials, I give them a voiceover in terms of explaining to them what I see um, and, and how some things are problematic, how a lot of times in movies, for example, uh, it's always the white characters that, that are that everything in the plot is all centered around and very, very rarely is that um, true of uh, women, uh, of uh, black women, of people who look like their mother. How I, I tell them about like that I've I've had to go out and make sure that they have books and dolls um, and things that really represent them uh, and that it's become easier in the past decade, but definitely even 15, 20 years ago uh, would, would have been a lot more difficult for me to find a black doll or to find children's books uh, where they're represented and that they can read and not feel uh, as if they need to find what their space is. Uh, so um, we, we talk about uh, a lot of different things, but um, simultaneously I try to not um, give them the, the conclusion per se. Um, they need to kind of make sense of it on their own. And I think it was after um, Philando Castile was, was murdered, how I very purposely uh, just started to do a lot of things very consciously um, so that I would be considered, um, quote unquote, as safe as possible um, if I was going to be pulled over by the police, where I would dress up and wear a tie, even though it was not necessary because I wanted to uh, just um, prevent any any kind of thoughts that I could be a danger, uh, which honestly still today um, persists. But, you know, I'm definitely um, at a place where I feel that the, the world is what needs to transform 
and um, I may need to do certain things to remain safe at times. But um, as I've grown older, even in these past months, I'm more so dedicated to uh, living living fully in my humanity um, and not not doing a lot of those things just to so that other people can feel safe around me. Mensa, we're talking not in person, and people are listening to this and not sitting in front of you. Um, describe yourself, and, and how does the way that you perceive yourself, um, how does that end up potentially affecting the way you behave? Sure. Uh, I mean, honestly, I describe myself as, as um, an African living in the United States. Uh, I was born here. Um, I was born in the, you know, in New York, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, at the same hospital that my mom uh, worked as a pediatric nurse for over 25 years. Um, there are a lot of reasons where I still do not feel um, fully uh, as a as a United States citizen or fully as an American uh, per se. I'm a six three, dark skin, uh, black man with you know dreadlocks that I've been growing for close to. 20 or 30 years now. So um, because of, I guess, my um, my stature, uh, I do. There are a lot of things that I've just learned to do to make others feel comfortable around me. Very rarely do I ever talk to someone when I'm first meeting them standing up because of the fact that my height may be intimidating. I've even found even sometimes subconsciously uh, that my voice might go up a couple octaves, um, or I may uh, just try to just not look as as threatening um, because of how uh, we have been socialized within uh, this world and especially within this country uh, to fear to fear black men. What does that mean to have to alter one's own self, one's own appearance, voice, sound, portrayal? to accommodate, I mean, just in listening to you, to accommodate somebody else's interpretation. I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a thing to have to do and feel and say. Yeah. Our current context is, is built on very racist uh, and white supremacist ideals. Um, sometimes I, you know, discuss this, these, these things with my children so that they can see it. Um, for themselves, um, but definitely that—that's—that's that's been my experience. Where, you know, um, a lot of black men would, and possibly black and brown women as well, will tell you of all of the microaggressions that that continue to occur. Uh, whether that's, uh, you know, someone feeling that we are going to cause them harm, you know, clutching of a purse, mm. uh, you know, um, the the ways that I've been searched when I go to an airport. Um, that you know. I've, I've had to take off my head wrap if I've had my hair wrapped up or, um, you know, there have been times when, you know, I'm the one person being pulled out to, to be searched. Uh, so um, all these things um, kind of play out. But there's uh, there are definitely choices that I make, some choices I continue to make. In listening to you, and that's interesting to hear that that perhaps part of what's happening with you in this period is a transition of sorts within yourself. Are you always having to think two to three steps ahead, whether that's regarding your daughters, whether that's regarding how you dress, whether that's how you interact with somebody, how you and your wife enter rooms? Is it, are you always on? 
absolutely. And, and I guess I have that choice, but um, am I always conscious of, of how I'm racialized in this, in this society? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's not a moment when I step out of my house where I get up, when I go to sleep, when I am not also thinking about um, what it means to be um, in, in my skin. Uh, to be someone who, for lots of um, faulty reasons, is is continued to be false, you know, falsely um, considered a threat, and a lot of these things have their roots in slavery, and it's a weird uh, psychology where uh, the ones that are actually doing the most harm um, are not the ones that are feared. That there's not a well-rounded view of of the full humanity of black men and black women is because they're not portrayed in the media and mm. and just it's a very new concept uh, to even have an equitable playing field there. And, and you know, it's going to take a long time if you look at the individuals and the corporations that are in charge of these things. Um, they're not they're not black men. They're not individuals who um, often even share a, a positive perspective. So um, there, there's definitely a lot a lot of work to do. But um, yeah, it's a there, there's never a time when I do not uh, consider my race um, because it's it's dangerous um, to do so. Uh, even, you know, I live in Prince George's County, which is the most affluent, um, I believe, still um, African-American community in, in the United States. And I'm still very conscious of what can happen here. I mean, you know, I would not be surprised and it hasn't happened yet if I'm cleaning my own lawn and someone uh, might believe that I'm the gardener, but I don't live there. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm walking around my own house and there might not be even within a black community um, that may not be some individuals who may suspect that I'm uh, being a burglar or doing something sneaky when I'm, you know, checking the gutters or walking around my own yard. So um, there's uh, a lot of, lot more work to be done. Um, in terms of really creating an equitable society. Uh, this this um, concept of the American dream is something that has never never been realized for United States citizens. It's, mm. it's still something that we are in pursuit of and have been for a long time. How do you keep from being overwhelmed? Uh, well, uh, it's, I, I try to work towards balance. It's not, it's not easy. Um, there are definitely moments when um, I need to just just being mindful of where I am is is uh, uh, where I am and staying in the present, you know, resonant breathing, kind of sometimes even recognizing where my emotions are coming from. You know, sometimes I may realize that I have an elevated heart rate, but I'm not quite sure why. And I have to really slow myself down and think back to is it because of, you know, just something someone said something someone did something that I read, uh, but, but being mindful has definitely helped. And, um, you know, absolutely. I, I mentioned earlier that my number one goal, um, for a long time has been coming home safe, um, every day, which at times, you know, it's, it's just a challenge, uh, within these United States and even throughout different parts of the globe. Um, but it's, um, I simultaneously try to, you know, keep, keep my humanity in check because I, because I want to be around to uh, not just be a good father now, but hopefully to uh, walk down the aisle in a couple of decades as well. You're talking about a citizen right. I mean, a, a right of each of us is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A, a, a fundamental right for each of us is the ability to come home at the end of the day safely. 
you know, that's a conscious goal of yours every day. Absolutely. And I guess this this current day, um, this reckoning that, that we're in now, I believe it is a time when that is being made evident to a lot of people who did not have to consider that. Um, I've had lots of conversations with, you know, co-workers and, and others um, as as we have gone through these these recent days. And um, there's a lot of uh, perspective taking that that is going to continue to be needed because, you know, for a long time, I've asked the same question that I believe a lot of um, those considered black in America have asked, like, what what is it really going to take for us to um, to overcome this? What was it really going to take for us to be everyone to be able to achieve this American dream for there to be full inclusion? Uh, so um, I think the the um, how the dominoes have fallen recently have definitely um been one of the reasons i mean with covid and the fact that there are no sports there are kind of minimized distractions that that people can um engage in and um cell phone video uh those those are some things that are are relatively new historically but those are some of the reasons why i think everyone is now seeing something that i believe a lot of us have seen and had to experience for for some time how do you think about the balance of the role that the pandemic plays um, at the same time as the George Floyd police uh, brutality moment? Yeah, I guess um, the, the COVID piece is new, um, but the uh, ongoing racialized violence is, is not. The murder of Ahmaud Arbery, um, not by police, well, by I guess by one ex-police officer and, and his son. Um, that took weeks um, to, to even uh, bring about any kind of change. And the only reason why change occurred was because of the ongoing protest that happened, because of the cell phone video, again, that was um, seen. You have the murder of uh, Breonna Taylor in her own home where mm -hmm. she shot. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I remember correctly, also the false imprisonment of her boyfriend, um, even though, you know, that they came into their house and, and murdered her. Then yeah. you have uh, George Floyd and uh, the, you know, the entire moment uh, recorded, uh, even as this, this man calls out for his deceased mother. Uh, when he says that he is dying, when he says that he cannot breathe, uh, when uh, the medical examiners who are there actually tell the police officer that he does not have a pulse and this person continues to uh, kneel on his neck and take his life. I was reading one article about a, a, uh, a gentleman like myself who has done like implicit bias trainings uh, in San Jose, California. Uh, who in the middle of a protest as he's trying to be the peacemaker, uh, he's shot by a police officer with a plastic bullet. And now this 29-year-old African-American man may not be able to have children. Mm -hmm. And he was one who was really trying to be the peacemaker. Who can look at these sequence of events and not say that there's a problem? You've been a school leader. You've been a principal, uh, other roles. You've trained educators about implicit bias and stereotype threat. Why do you think this is important work, especially now? I mean, this is critical work um, 
always. Again, I, I kind of frame this in, in a larger picture of like where, where we really want to leave the world. Like what, what kind of society do, do we want to leave to our kids and, and our grandchildren? And specifically in the United States, uh, we have not, we, we are the worldwide hypocrite. We have not dealt with uh, the history of how the United States was even founded. Uh, we have not dealt with uh, the continuing the continuing inequities that continue to present themselves. And even within our system of, of uh, mass incarceration, we are continuing to just, you know, essentially commodify black and brown bodies. And that's exactly what's happening with mass incarceration um, so that we can keep driving this, this capitalist train without acknowledging uh, what we're doing in order to prop this up. So I, I really do hope that this is a reckoning the world. I hope that this is a moment when this empire, uh, so to speak, has to really um, grapple with it, with its history and its destiny and where where we're really going. And again, seeing these progressions and regressions in history going from the inauguration of the first uh, black president in the United States in Barack Hussein Obama, and then eight years later going to um, this 45th president, we, we have to grapple with that history and really define, decide who we're going to be as a nation. Um, I remember one thing that a college professor uh, told me um, that, that just continues to resonate. Uh, when all else fails to unify the people, conditions will. So whether we're looking at the think about the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, highest unemployment rates here in the United States since the Great Depression, uh, the, the ongoing racialized violence, the inequity that we continue to see within our educational systems and our society at large. This is this is not the issue of individual people. This is not the, the issue of, uh, you know, of people being able, not having the skills and mindsets and dispositions to um, pursue, you know, the, the lives that they choose here in the United States. This has to do with the system that is very purposely uh, been oppressing um, vast parts of the population in order to continue to tell a narrative that's false. I'm a, I'm a proud United States citizen. I was born here. Uh, and I hope that this is a country that I can uh, be proud to leave uh, to my children. But currently, uh, we, we are not. And we have a lot of work to do. What's school's role in all of this? What are, what are the conversations that schools should be having with teachers, with parents, and I guess most specifically with children? I think the duty of schools and school systems is really to uh, dismantle uh, the oppressive um, structures on which they are built. I mean, our school system, frankly, was not designed to be equitable. Um, it, it was designed to really, you know, educate a very small portion of students well. Uh, frankly, white men, um, women were not initially even included. And though that design has continued to perpetuate itself. So I think... Uh, the duty of schools are really uh, the duty of schools are to be liberatory institutions where every child, um, every family can can really uh, be embraced and where the learner can reach uh, their fullest potential and be developed to reach their fullest potential. Uh, so the, this idea of education, uh, even going back to, you know, Paolo Friari, who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I mean, he talks about, you know, this this notion where. There's an owner of knowledge and the student, per se, 
you know, they are just depositories. So they kind of come in the classroom and the structures that be, you know, deposit the knowledge that they know and then get a degree and get certification, what have you. That really is not the duty. That's not what school should be doing. Um, we need to be teaching children how to think. And, you know, of course, there's some some things to be memorized, of course. But do students really know how to te- how to really critically engage with different types of information, communicate across lines of difference, and actually work cooperatively. I think that is really the duty of schools. Are schools up for the challenge? And are there certain principles from perhaps the science of learning and development that are integral to how you think about this? Uh, I think I think historically, everything has at times been placed on schools. So I don't think it's just up to schools uh, to do this work. There's often this false dichotomy between uh, academic learning and social and emotional learning, uh, when really you can't have, you know, you, you can't have one without the other. But hopefully that is something that all schools, all educational institutions can really embrace because that's what the science tells us. So, you know, for example, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary for the teachers and the educators of my daughters to have strong relationships with them. Uh, They have to know my children, not just in terms of what they know, but they need to also know um, about their daily lives. And and my kids need to know that these teachers, these educators actually, you know, care about their well-being. You've mentioned your two daughters. Have they internalized how black girls are perceived, maybe by schools, certainly by our society? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, um, no. I think we, um, my wife and I, have done um, very purposely, you know, tried to um, shelter them from a whole lot uh, that we uh, were not sheltered from ourselves necessarily. So, um, you know, both of my daughters, they're they're doing very well academically. They love to read. Uh, They're both um, have been selected for gifted and, and talented programs. Um, the one thing that I have not been able to avoid, um, even though we have surrounded our daughters with, um, you know, um, dolls and, you know, things that really reflect uh, their beauty uh, and books that, that do the same, uh, this concept of, of, uh, of beauty and what, what that really, how that is defined. I have, you know, dreadlocks that I'm extremely proud of. I've been growing them my entire adult life, um, close to 30 years now. My wife uh, is the same. Um, and, you know, my daughters, you know, they're, they are not as proud at times of, of their kinky hair. Um, and that is a direct result of a lot of the images that they see uh, on TV in terms of what, uh, what is or is not beautiful. And even in the, you know, the, within the current context, there have been uh, even legislation uh, that, that has um, uh, been proposed uh, so that institutions uh, cannot um, force black people uh, to um, fit into a white standard. There have been lots of things in the media, even in terms of uh, a young wrestler uh, several months ago who was forced to cut his hair uh, before a match, literally um, take out some scissors and cut his hair before a match. Um, there, there are just these ridiculous notions regarding what is or is not um, beautiful. Even just the concept that I, that I had to learn growing up, you know, tall, dark, and handsome, I thought that, you know, folks were talking about me uh, until, <laughs> until, I got, until I got to high school. And I, I realized that, you know, I was not the tall, dark and handsome 
um, that that uh, society was necessarily always referring to. So, um, yeah, it's it's difficult. It's difficult. Socialization, even with all that we've controlled um, for our kids, has been uh, there are still lots of things that that get through uh, the, you know, what, what we try to create and the barriers that we try to put up to to protect our children. Where are the places that you've been a principal? Uh, I've been a principal in Washington, D.C., uh, which is where I started. I grew up in New York. Uh, in Mount Vernon. Um, I've also been a principal in Holmes County, Mississippi. And then I came back to uh, Prince George's County. Uh, so I've, I've been a principal in those uh, three states, uh, all pre-K through eighth grade uh, and, institutions. And, and what would you be doing right now if you were a principal of a school right now? I would be encouraging uh, my staff to um, make sure that they're taking care of themselves. Uh, so that they can uh, show up in the best manner for uh, the children and communities that they serve. I'll be making sure that my teachers and my staff are building strong connections with the families, even in the virtual environment. Um, now, uh, given the pandemic, um, I would be you know, thinking creatively about what this upcoming school year would look like and how I can ensure um, that uh, we're setting ourselves up for success uh, when school buildings uh, do fully reopen. Uh, so I would really be focusing in on strong connections uh, with the families and the children that, the, that they're going to be serving, as well as really becoming experts uh, within their content uh, so that they can um, translate that knowledge and really you know, make sure that uh, their children are, are set up to, to master the standards um, that they're charged to master. There's a lot of work to be done. There, there, there are a lot of steps, and it's not lost on me that the first step that you outline is make sure that the teachers and staff are taking care of themselves. One, one has to kind of look out for oneself to be able to uh, help serve others, I assume. Absolutely. Um, similar to the plane analogy, you have to put your, your mask on first. Um, but simultaneously, even with that, that, um, that metaphor, like we need to be careful of what we're breathing in, uh, in terms of the information that we're consuming uh, and the pedagogy and ensuring as well that it's that it's culturally relevant. Mensa, what changes do you hope to see come out of the moment that we're in? I would hope to see um, us take a real critical look at at our society, where we're putting our resources and um, where those resources may uh, need to be redirected. I think the uh, issue of uh, defunding the police and really um, getting underneath the issue of mass incarceration is something that is not spoken of um, a lot uh, within public discourse. And we have uh, hundreds of thousands of, of individuals who are um, locked away in some cases for doing things that are now legal within these United States. And I think that that's something that's just just not right. It's not justifiable. I mean, race has no scientific backing. Uh, this race is something that was created, frankly, uh, to justify uh, the enslavement of millions of African people um, throughout the 17th century and then leading up to uh, the late uh, 1800s. We, we, I think this is a time that all these things need to be reexamined. So maybe we do need to defund the police and put that money towards counselors and social workers within schools and, and more educators. Maybe we do need to really look at this prison industrial complex and look at what it really would mean to um, have 
this large group of individuals re-enter society and be successful. Uh, maybe we really need to do with do away with this concept of race and really speak about um, who we are and not uh, perpetuate this this uh, caste system, uh, frankly, that, that we were born into. Uh, so those things, those possibilities, uh, and the world that I hope to leave for my children and my godson and all children, uh, that those are the things that uh, keep me hopeful. Mensah, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for the ideas and insights that you've shared. Appreciate it. Thank you again so much, Chris. That was my conversation with Mensah Ankma'a. My thanks to Mensah for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.